if you want a good lesson on the instability and impermanence of life, just look at all the clocks around here. <laughs> Each one in its own time, doing its own thing. <coughs> Undependable. This one's pretty good, though. All right. Good evening, room of five aggregates. <clears throat> All the five aggregates filling up this room. <clears throat> Let's get through these questions. Oh, boy. First one, huh? Right, right into consciousness, the hard question. If the, conscious, if the consciousness is not me, and there is no continuity to this self into the next birth, <clears throat> why should I work so hard for its liberation? Why not choose a middle path and follow certain rules and accept some amount of suffering as life as such? Why not? <clears throat> if you... <clears throat> If this is where you're at, then that's where you're at. I mean, to, to, to get off the train, as I call it, to be like, okay, I'm done with this sangsara thing. 
Um, you have to you have to have developed a, a certain amount of nibbida, right? Otherwise, it's kind of like, oh yeah, life is this is very good stuff and very bad stuff, and it's okay. I accept all of it, kind of thing. And, and listen, actually, I before I you know was a Buddhist, well, I went I went through this period where I hated everyone and everything, but then after that. <laughs> But then after that, I kind of said, oh, this is life. And then I realized, oh, okay, well, <clears throat> you can accept that there's this suffering in life. Or you have somebody like the Buddha who says, oh, guess what? You actually can end it. Here's the path. Follow it. So I was like, I can end it? Sure, why not? Let's give this path a shot. <laughs> right? <clears throat> So if you are, you know, if you've reached that point where you're ready to, you know, move further, then you're there. If not, what can I tell you? Okay, I'm going to try to convince you, you know, to, to not have a different view. Um, that's the way it goes. Yeah, everything is recorded. Um, when it will get online, I have no idea. Um, because the last two years' worth of stuff, I think, hasn't been <laughs> put online. <clears throat> but it is recorded. <clears throat> yeah. I'll put all kinds of information on the boards tomorrow, like social media, um, the recording sites, emails, and all that kind of stuff. That'll be all on the board tomorrow morning. How to develop detachment and dispassion without developing weariness, aversion, and disillusion towards life. It's all transient. What is the point of doing anything? Well, I would say the point is you're here. You're breathing. I mean, unless you're planning on ending your life you're kind of in it so the, the decision is now what do you do with the time that you have right <clears throat> that's really the ultimate thing you know what do you do so to me the point is what do you do that's the point it's your choice on how you choose to you know you're thrown into this world into this life you could say you didn't ask for it. <laughs> of course, in Buddhism, we know, yeah, you did. <clears throat> or else you would, have, you would have ended it in the last life. <laughs> but, um, you know, but that, that's the way it is. What is the point? The point is, you know, you decide how you want to live. That's the point. <clears throat> but uh, in terms of the first part, weariness is okay. Weariness is part of having that dispassion. That um, that disenchantment, you kind of weariness is like, you know, for a long time you're like, oh yeah, let's you know this, this life was pretty cool. I want to experience more good stuff. Let's go to the next one, and you're on and on, and then you're kind of like, oh, yeah, this is kind of tiring. You know, I, I think I'm ready. Maybe I'll slow it down a little bit. <laughs> no, maybe I'll move. I'll, I'll slowly get into stopping. You know, <clears throat> but um, so weariness is fine. Aversion is important, right? <clears throat> having disenchantment for the world is not the same as having aversion for the world. 
very different things. Dispassion, there's a, a couple similes. I'll give you the Buddhist simile. So the Buddha uses sandcastles. He talks about children making sandcastles. Just, just as quick aside, imagine 3,000 years ago, children making sandcastles. Isn't that like a cool thing? Right? The Buddha's using the simile of children making sandcastles. I don't know where there was sand up in the mountains of India, but, <laughs> but maybe there was parts he saw this. But anyway, so children are making sandcastles. Maybe not on the beach, I don't know. But they're making sandcastles. And the Buddha says, while they're making the sandcastles, they, cut, they, they, um, they love the sandcastles and they covet them and we, they protect them and all these kind of things. But then once they are done with the sandcastles, the, they don't care much about the sandcastles anymore, they, the Buddha says, they kick and stomp and take them out of play. So they're like, okay, we're done. <clears throat> Right? So <clears throat> then, um, as a kind of added to that, there's Tanisara Bhikkhu has a very good simile um, that works for anybody who has ever had kids or has been around a lot of kids. Right? And he uses the, the simile of you know, a child. You watch a child, right? And they get a new toy. And it's like everything to them. It's their world. They want to go to bed with it. They want to go to the bathroom with it. If they want to even take it into the, into the shower or the, bed, the tub and you have to say, no, this can't get wet and all these kind of things, right? So they're so, they love it so much. They want to sleep with it. If you want to go on a car ride, if, if that thing is not there, that you're going to hear it the whole way, right? So this is, oh. but then two weeks, three weeks, a month, Two months later, there's a new toy. And that toy is kind of hanging out in the corner. The old toy that was like this, the kids are like, yeah, that's okay. That's in the corner now. I have something new, right? So this is a nibbida, dis, dis, a disenchantment is like that child with the, you don't hate that toy. It's not like, oh, I hate this toy now. No, it's just, I don't feel intoxicated by it. I don't feel enticed by it it's just there so <clears throat> like this is a big thing with monastics like people who want to become monastics they come like i hate the world and i hate my girlfriend and my parents blah 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 i'm like i'm not you're not going to be a monastic <laughs> no, sorry that's not working <laughs> you know um if you become if you go into the monastic life with you're not going to last it's just not going to happen it, it, when you have a dispassion, like for me, like wh- when I went into monastic life, I was in the best shape I ever was in my life. I was making the most money in my, ever in my life. I had my own photography business. I had the most female attention ever in my life. I had everything that somebody could want. I mean, I wasn't like a millionaire, but I had enough money that I was comfortable. I was, didn't have to worry about money. I had all of that, right? But still, I had this kind of, eh, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> you know, if, if there is such a thing as another, as another life, I, sh- I had a great childhood, I think, but I still don't want to do that again ever. <laughs> you know, it's like, so I think, I was like, okay, you know, and so that kind of, even though, you know, life was good, and, you know, I don't hate life, I don't hate, I mean, I long since let go of the I hate people and everything in the world kind of, you know, mentality, but I don't feel 
eh, I don't want to be there either. You know, it's kind of like, I'm done. You know, it's time to get off the train. Time to, you know, this is the path. Okay, let me try this path and see where it goes. Um, so be wary of aversion. Definitely be wary of aversion in this. Because um, <clears throat> aversion is ignorance, right? Aversion, two sides. There's greed, hatred, and delusion. Attachment, aversion, and delusion. All stemming from ignorance and craving. So <clears throat> be wary of that. Uh, Bhante, as you said, we can only really experience anatta and not understand it. I can understand the concept of not permanent. How or when will I experience it? Do you really understand the concept of non permanent? That's the thing. Especially, see, see uh, anatta, um, uh, Anicca and Dukkha kind of can trick us that as well. Like, oh yeah, I understand. Yes, there's suffering in the world. Oh yeah, yeah, I understand that things are impermanent. But if you actually did, I'll, I'll tell you, this is how you know that you really understand impermanence. When the, when the Buddha was having his final passing away, it said that the, the people, monastics and lay people, were bound, beating their breasts and rending their hair and saying, oh, the life of the Blessed One is ending too soon. But then, off to the side, there were monastics who were abiding peacefully and reflecting, saying, the Blessed One has taught us that all that arises must cease. How can it be otherwise? There's a difference there, huh? That's experience, right? Oh, I know about impermanence, and then as soon as something happens, like a loss or something really strong, then you really know how much you know about impermanence, <laughs> right? You have lots of metta. Oh, I bliss out on metta all the time. And then you have a, an experience where you have to deal with people that's not pleasant. Then you know how, you, how much your metta is, <laughs> right? <clears throat> That's the difference between knowing and you know, knowing intellectually and knowing experientially. I can't tell you how or when you'll experience it. I can just only tell you that the practice unveils itself. You know, the the more you practice, you follow the noble fold path, practice satipatthana, four foundations of mindfulness. Right? Do follow the teachings that the Buddha has laid out and you will start to see that. That's part of the path. Uh, is the concept of emptiness the same as or somewhat connected to the no-self concept? So... <clears throat> Sunyata, the, con- the emptiness, is not something that really exists. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's not something that is a big thing in the early Buddhist texts. It's mentioned once or twice. And actually, when the Buddha is asked, is asked what is emptiness, he basically says not self. Um, 
So in terms of Theravada, in terms of the early Buddhist text, that's it, full stop. That's everything. That's emptiness. Um, but in terms of Mahayana, emptiness becomes a bit more wide and complicated and things like that. And I'm definitely not qualified to talk about <laughs> anything in the Mahayana. But that's basically, as far as I have seen reading all the suttas, <clears throat> you know, the one time or two times he's, Buddha is asked, what is emptiness? He, meant, he talks about not-self, anatta. So... I would say, I don't know if I would say they're the same, but there's, a, there's synonyms maybe, they're, they're connected in that regard. Empty of some kind of permanent soul. Besides Vipassana, are there other styles of meditation that allow a person to see the three characteristics of existence? So this is the important thing. This is a, this is, or how I was talking before about um, convention, right? The convention these days is we talk about Vipassana meditation or Vipassana technique. But in all reality, at least in the early Buddhist text, there's no such thing as Vipassana technique or Vipassana meditation. What we understand as Samatha and Vipassana are actually states of mind, qualities of mind, right? So <clears throat> when we see whether we're practicing mindfulness of breathing, whether we're practicing satipatthana, four foundations of mindfulness, whether even when we're practicing metta, right? There's a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya um, where Ananda gives 11 practices where you can, as Bhante Sila likes to say, switch to insight, right? And you can see, you even practicing the four Brahma-viharas, the four jhanas, all of these things. Are, these are all... Um, <clears throat> styles, meditation, whatever you want to call it, that in all of these you can understand this is impermanent. Like if you're in metta and it's so blissed out and you're just like, this metta is impermanent. Right? That might kind of make, oh, okay, it's impermanent. Like it's, now you're killing my bliss, man. <laughs> right? But it's like, this metta is impermanent. This metta is unsatisfactory. This metta is suffering. Right? This metta is not self. So all of these, there's a couple different things that the Buddha, when you read the suttas, there's a couple different things that fall under vipassana. So seeing things, vipassana means to see deeply, to see through. There's a couple different things that the Buddha teaches. First one is three characteristics of existence. That's definitely the top one. <clears throat> so when you see the three characteristics of existence, you're seeing deeply. You're seeing reality at its deepest core. The other part of seeing with Vipassana is seeing the rise and fall. So things rise, they persist for a time with alteration, and then they cease. When you see that, you see Deeply, you see the nature of reality. <clears throat> Another one is what's called the greed, um, not greed, hatred. It's called gratification, danger, and escape. In any one of your experiences, you see the gratification of this experience. You see the danger or the drawback in it, and you see the escape from it. So if you are observing your experience and you are able to see or to use any of these lenses, 
then you are observing experience with Vipassana. You're observing um, the experience in such a way that you are seeing it deeply. You're seeing it without delusion. You're seeing it um, very clearly. So if you practice mindfulness of breathing, and if you practice Satipatthana, those are the two premier teachings of the Buddha for meditation. If you practice those two, then those two will allow you to see things with Vipassana. Is consciousness divisible, i.e., can two living humans share their common past life? Or is consciousness better thought of as a web or a network with each living human? So there's all these kinds of things. Like, in terms of the early texts, I, I don't even know if this is a Mahan or not. I don't think this is. It might be, but, like, can two humans share the same past life? No. I mean, you can share, like, one of you was the, you know, the mother and one of you was the child or something like that. One of you was the, you know, one spouse and one of you was the other spouse. And like you can share that life in that regard. But in terms of like your karma and your consciousness and all that kind of stuff, no, there's no, you know, that's, that the consciousness is dependent on that particular being and that particular experience. And when that being is gone, then the consciousness is gone. When Namarupa is gone, right? So all of that dissipates. <clears throat> and then, uh, but there's no like two multiple people <clears throat> that would experience the same exact karma, the same exact consciousness. Um, <clears throat> and I wouldn't also say that consciousness is kind of like a web or a network. Um, because this is, <clears throat> the Buddha was asked this thing, like, the Buddha was asked, is all a unity? Or is all a division? Like basically, are we all one or are we not all one? Right? Non-duality or duality. And he didn't answer. <laughs> right? <clears throat> so the Buddha never said that we were all one or anything like that. Um, when the Buddha talks of consciousness, the Buddha talks of consciousness arising as part of dependent origination. The Buddha talks of consciousness as being connected with the senses. When, when there's the definition, what is consciousness? The Buddha says, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, etc. like that. So consciousness is intricately connected with a body having, you know, uh, sense organs. <clears throat> That's why independent origination even though in dependent origination, consciousness is higher up on the list, and then you have Nama Rupa, which is mentality and materiality comes after. But in one of the suttas in the um, Nidana Samyutta, where the Buddha talks about dependent origination, he basically says that they literally can't exist without the other. So even though consciousness is first on dependent origination 12 list, literally they have to come together at the same time. So, so 
So yeah, I guess that's all I have to say about consciousness. What is the name out, uh, of the skeleton out inside the meditation hall? Well, <clears throat> there's the name I named it, and then there's the name I just found out recently it was called by Bhante Rahula like 20 years ago. So I've combined it, and now the name is Bones, Jack Bones. <laughs> so I named it Jack, <clears throat> and they named it 20-some-odd years ago Mr. Bones. So, Mr. Jack Bones. <clears throat> now, the real question is, what is the name of the actual human skull in the library? That's the real question. Because Jack is not real. I think it's against the law in America for that to be real. <laughs> but in Asia, you go to a monastery, there you'll see a real skeleton. <clears throat> Uh, for those of us who work slash volunteer to relieve suffering in the world, I work in medical research. How do we think about, how do we, oh, okay. I, I guess this means how should we think, maybe? How do we think about our work from the perspective of the Dhamma? Ooh. <laughs> um... It depends on, I would say it depends on the scale that you're looking at it. At the grandest scale, there's no fixing samsara. You can try all you want, you ain't fixing the world. The world is the way it is, at the grandest scale. At the smallest scale, you can do a lot to help people. Right? Your actions actually have an impact on other people. Um, <clears throat> now, you can say you work to relieve suffering in the world. I would say for the average person, relieving suffering in the world, as in like the world, is an impossibility. You can maybe help relieve the suffering of some of the people around you. But on the other hand, they are suffering their own suffering. You can't take that from them. That's one of the things that when you work in a job like this, um, if you've lasted long enough, <laughs> you've realized, I worked for Child Protective Services for eight years, so I can... <laughs> if you've lasted long enough, you've realized that you can't take their suffering upon you. You can't take their suffering home, right? Because you cause yourself suffering. Nor can you really take their suffering away. You can only try to help them as best as you can. Right? <clears throat> so there's an interesting poem called the Starfish Poem. And so it's a, it's a, there's the two characters in this poem. There's a young boy on the beach and there's an old man on the beach. And the old man is walking down the beach and the beach has thousands of these starfish. And there's a young, you know, child on the beach <clears throat> picking up the starfish and throwing them in the water. And the old man says, what are you doing? That's silly. You can't save all of them. And as the boy's throwing in one, he goes, well, I saved that one. Both the old man and the child are right. They're both right. 
Right? It took me, I only just realized that they're actually both right because I, I would always kind of be conflicted between which one was right. Because I kind of see the boy's point, but I kind of see the old man's point. But I realized, no, 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 they're both right. It depends on the scale. Right? <clears throat> if, you, if you go out trying to save the world and change the world and all this kind of stuff, chances are your ability to do that is going to be very limited. Like for, I'll give it for instance. There's some people, though, that do have a grander scale. Um, like I went to California uh, a couple months back in the, over the summer, and I got to stay um, at this gentleman's house. And this gentleman, um, among many other things, was part of like high-level planning or whatever in like the United Nations in terms of global such and so. I don't I don't even remember what it was. Or I couldn't even <laughs> put it together in my mind what exactly what it was. And like thinking about that, I thought, well, okay. I normally tell people there's not much you can do, but then again, I guess if you're part of a like, in, if you're at a level where your actual decisions have grand, you know, you know, grand uh, reaching effects on people, then <clears throat> you do have a chance, right? I guess that's why we, you know, we have elected officials, right? And how we try to affect them is by telling, you know, by telling our elected officials, this is what you should do, blah, 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 all these kind of things. So <clears throat> this is what I would say. I would say keeping, keep in mind the expectations of what you can do and what you can't do, and do what you can do. Know when you're trying to change samsara, right? Which is going to be pretty much, in my opinion, an impossibility. And know when you're just trying to do the best you can do to live skillfully in the world and, you know, help others. <clears throat> but while you're helping others, make sure you're helping yourself and taking care of yourself. Because it's all too easy to lose yourself and others. That's actually a really good, um, what would you call it? That's a really good way to not have to deal with your own stuff is getting lost in another person, a spouse or a coworker or something like that. Uh, it doesn't help you. It doesn't help anybody else either. There is a new science that bridges biology and psychology. The microbiome is the, me is the many bacteria colonies in our body, mostly the digestive tract. 90% of our body is not human DNA. Yeah, that's a pretty cool fact, isn't it? <clears throat> But then again, 90% of your body is just, well, actually 100% of your body is just causes and conditions, right? <laughs> Does it have to be attached to this thing called human? Right? These bacterial colonies can be manipulated to cause depression, cravings, obesity, dementia, etc., or improved health. So, continue from other side. Okay. So if our cravings and thoughts can be controlled by the bacteria we carry, then no self is clear. Even a mouse can become fearless of predators by learning the bacteria in its colon. So what continues after we die? Well, that was... <laughs> yeah. so, oh, so what continues after we die? Um, <clears throat> wow. <laughs> uh, what I would be careful of and I mean, I guess I wouldn't say careful, but what I would say is, is I would be very careful of this kind of 
view that science can know everything or that you can kind of totally control a human being by understanding their this or their that. I, I don't know. That kind of... That goes into places that actually are quite scary to me, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, uh, you know, like the people who kind of... There's this view like, you know, people are a blank slate and all that. And that's been disproven for most part. But like, you know, there's this kind of view that people like we can manipulate and control other people as, you know, to whatever because we know all these things. And I don't know. That's a kind of a... I don't know what to say about that. That's probably why I'm rambling. <laughs> but... Um, so we can, you know... Our cravings and thoughts can be controlled, right? Okay. The type of craving, the type of thoughts can, but I don't know if that necessarily did these parasites or did these beings that are symbiotically existing in this body with us, did they create the cravings? Like, or are they just manipulating what's already there? I don't know. I don't want to go too deep into that. I'd be here all night going back and forth. Okay, so what continues after we die? Short answer, the mind. If you want to look, at the, the Buddha never gave this kind of like extremely detailed, this is exactly what happens after you die and then this and that. All this other, all that stuff was added later. Like this for seven days, this happens and then blah, blah, blah. All these, that, that's not, the Buddha wasn't, you read the early text, the Buddha's not going into that. The reason being, as he made it clear, is because it's not conducive to the ending of your suffering. It's conducive to a lot of your mind going like this <laughs> and lots of confusion and lots of questions. So, but in the early text, when, you, when you know, the Buddha talks about what goes on, like there's one that always sticks in my mind. He says, um, when somebody was worried about what was, where they were going to go after death, he says, you know, uh, you, know you lived such and such, and then, you know, on, once you, you die... Your body will, you know, will be like a useless stump, and your mind will go to distinction. Right? So it's like your mind will go here. Now, different people translate it differently. Like for instance, Bonte Sila says it in such a way that um, it's the five aggregates, but the but refined. So it's the five aggregates that are not form, right? So that are all mental, and then a refined or a subtle form that goes. And I don't know what to say about that one way or the other but this is all people trying to kind of <clears throat> give people answers because they want answers they want, I need to know this I need to this is why I love the Buddha it's like invalid question <laughs> right this is how you read the the text and the Buddha's so he's he's trying to keep you from getting to it's like he knew westerners <laughs> if you know Ajahn Chah like Ajahn Chah is the famous Thai monastic who's famous for saying um, stop reading books, <laughs> you know, put down your books, these kind of things. And it's because, it's, it's, not, it's not that he's saying that there's nothing good in books. He's saying is you're intellectualizing. You're wrapped up in your mind is all the, this teacher says that, this teacher says You can get so lost in all of these things <clears throat> where the important thing is your experience. And that's what the Buddha is pointing towards, your experience. So <clears throat> you can get all kinds of answers Depending on the tradition and depending on what books people are going by, um, I'm, you know, like I'm sure Abhidhamma and other things can tell you all kinds of answers about 
what happens after or what continues after we die. But if you just want the Cliff's Notes, just your mind continues on. Tennis Arabiku talks about the skillful use of the, uh, this self-identity along the path used in a relative, temporary, or provisional sense <clears throat> to move us towards awakening. Is this wise or just more trouble? I remember Tennyson saying something about the fact like it's important to develop a like good self-esteem or self-image to be able to let go of your of the self or something to that effect. And I actually, I, f- I found some truth in that. To be honest with you, um, <clears throat> no, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that this is trouble per se. Um, it's kind of like the Buddha. There's a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya where Ananda is asked, is there such a thing as skillful craving? And he's like, yes, there is such a thing as skillful craving. The craving that leads to the ending of all craving. Right? <clears throat> so my impression of what Tanisara is saying here is <clears throat> that, well, think about it as when you become a Buddhist, right? Some of you don't know that experience. Some of you have started that experience. But you see, like, your identity kind of changes, right? You, you, start to, you start to live your life by a certain framework. And you start to make different choices and make different decisions. And your friends are like, come on, let's go. It's Friday night. Let's go to party. And you're like, well, I'm sorry. I'm going to Bhavana for a retreat. You know, these kind of things. So things start to change, right? <clears throat> and you develop, like, I, the way I kind of, like, I talked to you about, like, the whole character thing. Like, there's, there's Joe. That's my lay life name. So there was Joe for 36 years. And then that turned into Jay. And even though I'm Jay the monk, there's a heck of a lot of Joe still in there. And Joe lived a lay life. And Joe's like, well, why don't we do this? And I have to be like, because I'm a monk now. And they're like, <laughs> right? You know, all these kind of things. Joe is still in there. <clears throat> that car- that- so I have to kind of, in a way, build this new identity of Jay. To reflect, I'm a monk, I'm a monk. You know, so like the Buddha even says, there's this thing called the Dasadama that I had to memorize. And like these are ten things that you should recognize now that you become a monastic, like you live a different life, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So you like you even the Buddha, like you have to understand like you are you are creating in a way a different identity that's going to allow you to <clears throat> develop along the path. And even just as a layperson, when you follow the noble full path and you do that, you start to do that. Like it becomes more of a priority and you start coming to retreats and, and all of that kind of stuff and your life changes. So I think that's what Buddha, uh, uh, what Tenasaro Bhikkhu is talking about here. I think that's what he, he means in this regard. You're kind of, you know, developing this identity along the path as a way to, and just like as the Buddha says, Justice, when somebody takes the Dhamma as a raft and goes to the other shore, <clears throat> at the other end of the shore, they're not like you know, Navy SEALs. They don't like lift the raft over their head and go walking on the, you know, on the ground. They just leave the raft there. There's no point to the raft anymore. So they just leave the raft. You leave the Dhamma. You know? In the end, you're beyond good and evil. You're beyond the Dhamma. You have essentially, I guess, become the Dhamma. But that teaching <clears throat> is not needed. You've become awakened. 
you followed the path to the end. <clears throat> so the same thing in this regard. You use it until the end. <clears throat> and then it's not needed anymore. It's hard to reconcile the teaching on identity with the need to live our everyday lives, making plans, going about your daily business. How should lay people think about using this teaching with the well, mundane stuff? <clears throat> so again, this is, this is the importance of understanding like uh, Ajahn Chag, I have to use him again because he just uses these, puts these words like it's the most the easiest thing. Ajahn Chah says you have to become the master of the transcendent and the conventional, <clears throat> right? The, if if you're kind of you know the 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 person who's not a master of both is like these five aggregates are tired. These five aggregates are. <clears throat> you say okay, this you know you understand in your mind that, or maybe you don't. Maybe you say, okay, well, Buddha's saying that there's no permanent self, but you're still a mother, you're still a father, you're still an aunt, you're still a co-worker, you're still an employee, you're still all of these things, and you still have all these responsibilities and things that you need to do. <clears throat> that doesn't change, right? That all of, the, all of that stuff doesn't miraculously just disappear, like even an awakened being, like you become an awakened in your identity, but you still have to like, you know, go to Padi Mocha and chant with the monks and do all these kind of things. And you still have to do all of these things because you're still in that last body. You still have to deal with all the conventions. <clears throat> so it's, you know, it's kind of like, you know, playing make-believe or something. <laughs> I don't know. But, but this, is what it, this is the important thing to understand. Just be, even... As you start to understand and see that these things are not self, or, or you know, oh, I thought this was myself. Not that it doesn't automatically mean like all of a sudden you're like, how do I live with myself? No, it's like okay, I I go eat, and then I go watch some TV, and then I have to do my homework or my taxes or whatever, and then and then that's it. It's like you're still living in the world, um, you know, and if you've reach the point where you've become awakened or whatever, then you're like, okay, I think I'll become a monastic now. Or maybe you've reached a point where you're like, okay, I'm done with this, and then you become a monastic. Um, but even as a monastic, you have jobs and things you have to do. <clears throat> you know? Um, so, there's a, remember that, kind of, that difference between the transcendent and the conventional. We live in a conventional world, Right? You know, I said about our parents giving us names. Well, names are the most conventional things in existence, right? Our ancestors were like trying to survive together, take down, you know, survive from saber-toothed tigers and take down, you know, mastodons and all these kind of things. Uh, you know, they couldn't coordinate if they're like, you, you, and then you. And they, no, they, names and all this, like, you know, it, these are all parts of convention, <laughs> all right, you know? Um, so this is all convention. So don't mix the conventional and the transcendent. Keep that in mind. What not-self allows you to do is what the whole practice allows you to do. It allows you to live more skillfully in the world. Right? It allows you to act more skillfully. Right? <clears throat> you know, you used to get really angry 
And then you, now you just observe the anger arises. Okay, this is anger. And I feel the impulse. It's almost like I feel the energy that wants to burst out. But I don't need to let it. It's okay. You know? And I've developed techniques to be able to skillfully handle this and things like that. That's, you know, that's an incident of understanding that, okay, this anger is not me. Right? <clears throat> Before that, whatever just happened, you, there's not even a split, second of, a split second of debate or thought that this is not me. Like the, the thing that I told you about my thoughts, like maybe it's hard to maybe kind of that the, 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 um, the sweet Caroline moment. Like that, it sounds like when you think about it, if you haven't had the experience, you're kind of like, well, what does that mean? Okay, your mind was quiet for a little bit. <clears throat> but when you have that experience, especially for the first time, and it's just not there. It's, it's hard to explain. It's just, you know, you, you, there's all of a sudden there's this split. And you thought all of this stuff, first there was this whole you. This is all me. <clears throat> but then now all of a sudden you see, okay, this stuff is not me, but I still think this stuff is me. Right? And so over time, you're just kind of, more stuff is going over to there. Not mine, not mine. This is still me. Right? Um, but you still have to, like, so even if it's, say, one last example. Okay, you have a child. You become awakened or whatever, or you, be, or you start to see not self. You're like, ah, oh, this is not, I'm not myself. This child's not myself. I think it can just handle it, take care of itself. It'll be okay. It'll, it'll, maybe it'll have a good rebirth next year. Like, no, of course. Like, you, you understand, okay, this being has been, has been born, and it's under my care. And I have to take care of it and, you know, and teach it how, teach it good dhamma so that it can become awakened and things like that. So even the key is understanding the transcendent and the conventional. That's the key. If there is no self, then we are an aggregate of energy. What is the, what is its purpose? How to find our society meaning value with Buddhist teaching. Okay, I've kind of talked about that. Um, does there have to be a purpose? Right? Does, do, does energy, does all these things, like, you know, stars of the Big Bang, stars are born, all this kind of stuff. Does there have to be a purpose? I mean, most scientists would say, no, there's no purpose, because then if you think purpose, then you're automatically thinking creator, God, and all these kind of things. So, of course, if you talk to a scientist, they're not going to say, does there have to be a purpose? And, but uh, the same. I mean, does there have to be a purpose? The Buddha talks about, remember, the Buddha tried to find the beginning, and he went back, and he went back, and he couldn't find the beginning. He says, there is no beginning can be discerned to beings wandering in samsara, full of ignorance, right? There is an end that can be discerned, but the end has to go, uh, has to be in an individual's practice. Um, so, you know, in, in a way, the purpose of, you know, the purpose is what you make of it. That's what I said before. Um, How to find our society meaning value with the Buddhist teaching. Hmm. 
Well, I think that's something you have to practice and see for yourself. Right? That... Um, When you practice the, the teachings, you un- experience it and you understand it, and then you see the value for yourself. Nobody can convince you of it otherwise. It would be kind of <clears throat> think about a think about a world where everybody was at least a sotapanna. That would stop a lot of things, wouldn't it? <laughs> A lot, of, a lot less problems. Not no problems, because Sotapanas are still have greed and hatred and all that kind of stuff. But there would be a lot better things. <clears throat> when it comes to like society and things like that, the Buddha started from the bottom and went up. Like he talks about <clears throat> the, the cycles of like when society um, becomes skillful and then life, life uh, spans increase, right? And it's because the people are being skillful and they're doing good deeds and all these things. And then once the people become greedy and, and the, uh, greed and hatred and delusion start to come and then th- their actions start to, <clears throat> you know, act, their actions start to become... Uh, unskillful, and that leads to decrease in the cycle. <coughs> so it all stems with each of our individual actions. In modern U.S., we are asked to define ourselves. Define <coughs> in preschool applications, individual education plans, college apps social media, performance reviews, shoe choice, etc. And on and on. See, you're you're creating a character. My character has plus one to, you know, uh, psychological suffering. (laughs) Um, All right. I heard a few laughs. They know (laughs) what I was trying to say. All right. Okay. On and on. Psychological suffering increasing. Is does the Dhamma stand a chance? If so, how? No, the Dhamma doesn't stand a chance. The Buddha said that the Dhamma will go away. That's normal. <clears throat> the Buddha, that, the Buddha, that's the whole thing. A Buddha is not a person. A Buddha is a title. You know the, what happens is the the Dhamma is forgotten. And then a Buddha comes along and the Buddha finds the Dhamma and becomes awakened and then proclaims it and teaches it. And everybody's like, oh, this is awesome. Okay, and then people become arahants. And then after a time, it gets forgotten again. It gets lost again. People are like, what the hell? Why am I doing this crap? I might as well just enjoy life and do all this and do that. Why am I bothering with this? <clears throat> and then eventually another Buddha comes. So, yeah, the, the, the Dhamma is, you know... In terms of us practicing it and us remembering it, the Dhamma doesn't stand a chance. Um, But in terms of what you're talking about here, I think what you're kind of talking about modern society and um, psychological suffering is increasing. That's interesting, isn't it? That really is interesting. That we're more connected 
than we've ever been before, but we're also more distant than we've ever been before, right? I can text any one of you from a thousand miles away, but I probably would know you on the most surface of levels that there's really no connection, right? It's an interesting dichotomy. It's an interesting thing that happens in this regard. But if you can understand, so society, you know, teaches all of these things. We define ourselves, right? Okay. So you reflect on it that this is all part of this character. This is all part of this building up of me, right? Do I really need to attach to that? Do I, you know, okay, so my college you know, wants me to do this, or this wants, you know, this is how I'm taught. Do I need to accept it? Do I need to attach to it, right? Is it skillful? Is it useful in my life, or is it not useful in my life? <clears throat> Think of it from that perspective. And then you, you will just naturally do what's skillful. And if <laughs> you will go against what's unskillful. Like ever logging on social media ever. (laughs) If we have no self, our thoughts are not us, our bodies are not us, yada yada, then what is observing these aggregates? Consciousness, awareness. Ah. So this is where you get into where... There's a long history of this because it's, it's an interesting thing. It kind of goes to what I was saying. People are like, well, if this is not self, but then what is the awareness? <clears throat> right? And so there was a, in later Buddhist works, there was this kind of schism where they were trying to say like there's this, the awareness is self. Like there was this whole like the Brahmins kind of invaded Buddhism a couple hundred years after and they're like, but this awareness is self, right? Or this awareness is permanent. But even this awareness is not permanent. It's dependent. It's dependent on your your having a body. It's dependent on consciousness. It's dependent on all of these things. It's being conscious, right? Having consciousness. Without consciousness, there's no awareness. So it's just like everything else. This awareness is impermanent. This awareness is unsatisfactory. If you're trying to see things deeply and, you, and you're struggling with it, you realize how unsatisfactory it is, how much suffering. Oh, I'm really trying to see not self. Stupid awareness, why aren't you better? <laughs> right? <clears throat> and it's not self. It is simply, so it's kind of like, you can think of it like a microscope. Your awareness is a tool. Your, your mind has this tool called awareness, that you can focus and try to observe something, right? And so through causes and conditions, you're making the decision, I want to use this awareness to develop insight, right? And so you use that awareness as a tool. Your awareness, instead of being off in France and Rome and, and Egypt, or, you know, being, you know, daydreaming here, you know, being observed, you know, being enraptured and feeling in the body or whatever you're you're taking that awareness and you're using it towards a specific purpose so even the awareness or what is observer like 
there's, there's a lot of confusions. Like in Thai forest, there's, um, there's this thing they call it the observer, like become the observer, right? And so you, you think, like, it, it can be very confusing, which is why I don't use it, although I understand what they're talking about, because then you think, well, is the observer permanent? Is the observer self? <clears throat> and, of course, the Buddha's answer is no, it's not permanent. It's not self. Um, While developing one-pointed concentration on my meditation object, I am repeatedly distracted by a painful emotion accompanied by a desire for things to be different than they are. Welcome to being a human. (laughs) Right? That's suffering. That's dukkha. I am mindful and investigate these emotions. Very good. That was going to be my first thing I was going to say. (laughs) Very good. Investigate the emotions in terms of the three characteristics, but it is persistent. I cannot gain equanimity. How can I work with this? A lot of times, observing something once or twice or a hundred times doesn't get you far. Like, you know, there's things like I've had in my experience where like I've been able to observe it and investigate it and I've been able to naturally let it go and it leads to lots of peace. And then there's things that are deeply ingrained that even though I observe it and I investigate and I'm like, well, when the heck am I going to be able to <laughs> let this go? When the heck am I going to be able to overcome this? And I'm just not there yet. So I just keep watching. Keep, so it's like you, maybe you have to keep observing and investigating a thousand times, 10,000 times before you're able to let it go, depending on how deep it is. Right? Like with me, it's like, you know, I have lots of issues um, with emotional eating and coping eating and all that kind of stuff. I was almost 400 pounds and I know depression and all these kind of things, right? So <clears throat> I've not been able to fully let go of my, my desire to cope through eating. It's not gone yet. You know, I had weight loss surgery eight years ago. I, you know, all this, going through all these things, but that, and I've worked on it through not only meditation, but therapy and all these kind of things. It's not gone yet, it's diminished but it's not gone, right? And so I kind of like, well, I'm kind of stuck with this damn thing. <laughs> I, wish it was go- I wish it would go away so I could live, you know, have less suffering, but it's still there, right? So what can I do? I can only work with it and investigate it and continue to observe it <clears throat> and to try to minimize any damage it will- wants to cause, you know? Now, the other thing I could say is, and this gets a bit more into the practical aspect of it, but emotional, emotion accompanied by the desire for things to be different, a painful emotion. So maybe we're talking about some kind of a trauma here, right? And maybe that trauma needs to be worked on. Maybe there needs to be some kind of therapeutic intervention, or maybe there's something that you feel you need to do, right? Um, you know, maybe something hurt you or somebody hurt you and you need to do something about it. 
Um, you need to have it made known. Maybe you have to do something because that might be your mind is saying, okay, it's going to keep coming back until you work with it, until you work through it, until you f fix it, until you do something about it. And so maybe you, you know, have to do something about it. Um, but of course you want to do it in a very skillful uh, way that's going to be beneficial to you and not harm you. All right, last question. When I encounter physical pain during a sitting, I can investigate it for a short time, but then I want to move to make it go away because I am angry that after all the emotional pain I have had in my life, why do I have to endure something that I can avoid? <laughs> what should I do? Well, just like that last question, that's something to investigate. That's something to observe, right? <clears throat> Why am I sitting here trying to... <clears throat> I've had lots of emotional uh, pain. Why do I have to endure? Why are you here meditating? Right? You're seeking some way to end that emotional pain or work through it or whatever, right? <clears throat> And so meditation is hard. Meditation is not easy. That whole, you see the pictures of somebody like this on the beach, that's total BS. That's people who've never meditated in their lives. <clears throat> when we, most of our lives, we go through our lives avoiding looking internally. Stuff happens to us, trauma, minor stuff, major stuff, whatever. It just is in there. <clears throat> and we avoid it. We lose ourselves in others, right? <clears throat> we do all we can to avoid dealing with it. And then one day you're like, ah, I, you know, I have anxiety. Maybe I'll try this meditation thing. And then you sit down and boom, it all comes back. <clears throat> it's your mind saying, hey, remember all this stuff that you didn't work on? Well, here it is again. <clears throat> and so you have to, what, what can you do? If you want to move, if you want to continue to practice, you have to work with it. You have to endure it. You have to understand it and investigate it. <clears throat> Buddha says, patient endurance is the best meditation. Right? And Buddha talks often about my disciples ha have to endure pain and weather and gadflies and mosquitoes and all these kind of things. <clears throat> So being able to bravely and courageously face pain and face suffering and to endure it is part of the practice. It's absolutely part of the practice. I made this years ago. I made this little meme. It's like these funny pictures. <clears throat> and the, the top part is meditation. And it says what it looks like on the outside. And there's this woman on the beach like this, all this. And then what it actually feels like in the inside. And it's like soldiers in Iraq and they're fighting and they're doing it. Like, and it's like, this is the reality of meditation. <clears throat> the reality is looking inside is hard. It's not easy. And sometimes people start to look inside and stuff comes up like the trauma. And that's when you need, meditation is not therapy. You need therapy. You need to work through this. Meditation can be used in conjunction with it. That's why you got... <clears throat> all these therapists who are also trained in mindfulness-based stress reduction and all these kind of things, right? You can do both. But you need to, you know, to work through these things, you know. Um, 
So when you're sitting there and you're meditating and you have that pain, try to endure it as best you can. But when you're done, you're done. It's like I gave the instructions this morning, right? You observe it until it goes away or until <laughs> your endurance is done. Don't try to force it. Don't try to grit it. <clears throat> you're just going to make it worse. You're just going to hurt yourself. I can remember being in this meditation hall and I was like, I even gave the earth witnessing posture. I'm like, I'm going to sit here and I'm not going to move and I'm going to do this and I'm, <clears throat> and I'm gritting. And I got into some deep good meditation, but then I started, I started like, I, I noticed that there was something going on in my hip and in my leg. And I'm like, eh, I don't care. I'm, it's pretty chill in here right now. I'm just doing good. But then as soon as I came out of it, I was like, oh yeah, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I couldn't sit for like a week, like meditate to sit, because I, because <clears throat> I had like hurt my, my hip and my you know the stretch it out too much and all that stuff. So there, don't force yourself, right? But you have to be courageous. At least <clears throat> when you stop, it's okay. It's having compassion and kindness for yourself. You need that, right? But what you never want to do is give up. You retreat for a time, you take care of yourself, you rest, <clears throat> you work on yourself, and then, okay, now it's time to get back in. Now it's time to investigate that pain again. Now it's time to look, right? That's how you do it. You have to have, find, like the Buddha says, to find your theme, find your balance, right? We all have our own kind of, our own level, our own theme of our meditation. Some of us can be more hardcore and some of us not so hardcore right some of us need more compassion and kindness for ourselves <clears throat> and some of us need to push ourselves more we all have our kind of you know these different inclinations in these different parts of our practice that's why the buddha says you have to find that balance um, so investigate and endure when you can anymore it's okay protect you know kindness to yourself Lots of metta to yourself. Pop, prop yourself up and say, oh, you're doing good. You know how many times I have to do that to myself? You know how many times I have to, there's times where I'm so, so tired and so agitated and so averse. I'm like, oh, I got to deal with these people again. And here I'm a monk. I'm so, <laughs> right? And I have to be like, okay, okay, Jay, you're doing good. You know, you're not perfect. You're not awakened. You're not there yet. Just, you know, you're doing... So it's like positive self-talk, right? Okay, good. Okay, you know, and then you take a break and you rest and you come back. Oh, okay, good. Right? It's like when retreats, right? At the end of the retreats, I'm like, oh, I'm so happy they're all leaving. And then by the time there's another retreat, I'm like, oh, I love everybody. Come on, this is great. We're going to practice Dhamma together. This is great, <laughs> Right? That's just the way it is. That's part of the mind. The, the likes and the dislikes and the ups and the downs and all these kind of things. Like I get to travel somewhere. Like recently I was just in Williamsburg. We have some of our Williamsburg people here, right? And it's great. I get to go to Williamsburg. Then at the end I'm kind of like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm like, I just want to rest for a couple of days. Next week I have to go somewhere else in Virginia. Right? And, and by, at this point I'm kind of like, oh, this is the end of the year. I'm so tired. Do I have to do this? But no, it's like, oh, this is great. I get to meet people. And get... So it's like using, it's positive self-talk and, and compassion for yourself and all these things. 
can help you really get through the tough stuff, right? Really get through all of these things because that's what meditation is. Meditation is tough. Meditation is the hardest thing. Following the path. I call this the noble eightfold path is like the quest. It's this my nerdy gamer guy coming out again. This is the quest. It's the greatest quest. Like you hear like Joseph Campbell, the hero quest and all of that. If you read his book on the hero quest, the Buddha plays a prominent role in that book, right? Just along with Hercules and all these other. So the following this path of awakening is the greatest, most hardest thing that a person can do. And so if you're on that path, you could, oh, good, you know, encourage yourself. I'm doing good. This is great. It's hard. It's okay. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. Just keep up. Keep getting. Keep moving. If you have to pause, it's okay. Keep going. Am I re- okay, I really am going to end with Sylvester Stallone. But <laughs> one of my favorite quotes, I love all these quotes, but in that one Rocky, one of the last Rocky, I hear there's like eight more Rocky movies since I became a monk. But the last one, he, he's talking to his son, and he says, it's not about how hard you can hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving. Keep getting up. Keep moving, right? That is the practice. You're going to get hit hard. You're going to deal with lots of pain and lots of issues. But you get up, and you keep going. Take a break. Lots of compassion, lots of love, metta for yourself. Okay, we're keeping moving. We're keeping going, Right? And you just keep going. You don't quit. That's the most important thing. You don't quit. You just keep going. Sometimes you have to back up. Sometimes you have to retreat. But you keep going. And then you won't have to worry about pains. Because you've gone beyond them. All right. That's it. So that's the end of our third day. Final Q&A. Final all that jazz. Um, we'll take a break and come back for final meditation. Um, I will put on the put out all of the uh, you know the avows and all that. Now, don't use this as, as an excuse not to go and meditate. <laughs> take your break and come back, but uh, and then you can take your evaluation with you. Um, you know, work on it tomorrow or whatever. Um, but uh, I'll put that stuff all out now, and um, then tomorrow we'll have uh, we'll end. So. Take a break and come back for meditation. And you just experienced a glimpse of what I would say if you came to me and saying you wanted to leave the retreat. Basically the same stuff.